0: Welcome to another episode of the ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road. Today we have a special guest with us. We have Sevilla Blunk from the rock rider MTB world cup, uh, elite team. It's exciting to have you here. We're going to talk about all sorts of questions, but really we're going to kind of get into like some secret tips, so to speak on some different things about how Sevilla is so fast. We also have coach Chad with us. We also have squid bikes, Ivy, drain, um, Civilia, first things, I am just going to get straight into it. A question from Moira, because this is something that's been sent in for quite some time and she was hoping that we would have you on at some point. And I should have followed up earlier to have you on, but I'm just going to read her question and then that's a great way to introduce you and to get into the whole thing. So Moira says, Hey, podcast host, my name is Moira and I'm a podcast newbie. My husband got me into mountain biking last year and I'm so hooked. I may only do short rides and take the B line or C line, she says, uh, whenever (laughs) possible, but I'm hoping to do a race at some point or at this season, at some point, I'm writing to see if you've ever had civilian Blanc on your podcast. I looked, but couldn't find an episode with her after watching her in the top 10 or run in the top 10 on many occasions at the world cup races last year, I was so impressed with how calm and strategic she seemed in that situation. And that's a really good assessment. I would agree with that. Uh, super, super impressive, uh, racing last year. Sevilia. Uh she says, if you haven't had her on, could you get her on to talk about number one, how she manages her emotions in a race situation? Number two, what her pacing strategy is like for XC racing and number three, what she does to become such a good bike handler. Um, let's go with the first one, Seville, like managing your emotions in the race situation. This was like your first year in elites last year. Is that correct? So. That had to have been overwhelming to be like on the world stage, people watching around the world, the biggest races in the world for cross country mountain biking and your first year elite yet you are always, it seems like present toward the front in the top 10. Was that hard to manage all that? Were you thinking about how big the races were?
1: Yeah, well, well, thanks. I mean, first of all, that's like a compliment to that. She thinks that I was looking calm and collected because. In my brain, that is probably not what was happening. <laughs> um, but yeah, this last year was like a, a super big year for me. It was my first year elite racing the World Cups. And um, one thing that I was really kind of battling with the whole season or for the majority of it was my, my start position uh, because I didn't have enough points to qualify for short track. I was starting sixth, seventh row for most of the World Cups. so um, that kind of, whenever I think of the like World Cups in the early season, that played such a big role for me because um, I was always starting in the back and that was a really big part of my strategy going into the race was like how am I gonna navigate the chaos in the at the start to get to the front as fast as possible and kind of catch up. Um, so I was kind of constantly playing catch up and really trying to navigate that chaos, which was super frustrating, um, a lot of the time, but also a really good lesson that I was kind of learning every, every race. Um, so yeah, I guess going back to her first question, like, I think one thing I, I think about a lot when I'm racing is, and at the start of these big events is like just reacting to the situation. I think Like that's all you can do is just react to others around you. Um, you have no time to, you know, get frustrated or, or kind of, um, falter if, if you get caught up in a crash or if somebody like unclips in front of you, um, if you lock bars with somebody at the start and especially starting so far back, like it's absolute chaos. Like you're, you're so close to so many riders, um, and just trying to navigate through that as smoothly as possible and, and get to the front as fast as I can. So that was, would probably be my biggest one is just react and, um, and also really focus on refocusing throughout the race. Like I, I, there's a thousand times during a race that I refocus, um, because you're constantly like getting, having those little distractions come in front of you, uh, whether, you know, it's like what I explain, a rider or, um yeah, usually it's, it's your competition, like around you, just kind of making your path forward a little bit more challenging. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely a big one for me. Um,
0: is it, when and you then like I said, uh, Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, no, go for it.
0: When you mentioned refocusing on, on things, is that, so, so, when you're refocusing are you refocusing on a specific set of tasks that you have in plan when you start the race, like do you have like steps or things that you want to accomplish and then you refocus on those, or do you just are are you shooting for an outcome? How do you do that?
1: yeah, yeah I mean more refocusing like on the end goal um kind of you know y- you can be so distracted by um like if, if you get caught up in a crash, it's super frustrating. It's super easy to be, you know, start using the mental or physical energy, uh, being frustrated about it. And then, I mean, you're, you're ultimately losing seconds and you could have been spending that time, you know, focusing on bringing your heart rate down and getting back on your bike and getting going as smoothly as possible. Um, so that's kind of what I think about is just refocusing on the goal. And, and for sure there's, I definitely, I do set like sub goals within a race, Um, there's, you know, the end goal, but it's really important also and helpful in these situations to set sub goals because they're like easy things for you to kind of, uh, to trigger your brain, to go back to and use them to kind of refocus again.
0: Nice. Yeah. I think that's interesting that you mentioned that because Ivy and Chad, I've noticed that with all the really high performing athletes that we've had on, particularly the cross country Olympic racers was so much chaos. Um, but it's like that you have accomplished this, accomplished this and accomplished this, like in order to make that happen. Whereas a lot of us average athletes are just like, I got to (laughs) win. And if I don't win, (laughs) like it's (laughs) all over. And that's, that's, that's our entire race plan. Um, on the the pacing strategy side of things, I don't know if it's different for short track and cross country, but how have you approached that? Like coming from the back row? or not the back row but you're definitely not on the on the front row and that's really tough and has that changed as you've moved up in your starting order throughout the year
1: Yeah, yeah, that I mean, you she asked about pacing in the XC races and uh, honestly, I started 6th or 7th row for the majority of the World Cup season. Um and for me, there really wasn't any pacing strategy. It was just getting to the front as fast as I can. Um, kind of like catching up because you're already behind basically at the start. Um, and basically catching up to the front, going as hard as I can to get there and then trying to hold that for as long as I can until I blow up. Um, so (laughs) 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 that was pretty much my strategy. Um, maybe it wasn't the most successful every time, uh, but I, you know, like, I just really didn't have another choice at the back, because uh, you you can't, like, take your time and, you know, navigate through the chaos, like, you know, at your own pace. Um, it's really just like getting to the front as fast as possible. Um, and yeah, I had some good starts from the back. Um was, I mean, honestly, it's, it's 50% luck. Like it's so much about just luck and having, you know, nobody crash in front of you or um, n- no like big setbacks happen. Uh, but, but yeah, I think that was for me a big one. Um, and then same in the short track, like at, towards the end of the year, I got into uh short track in the last two rate, two world cups of the season. Um, and that was like a game changer. It was super exciting to be, to have that opportunity to race for a better start position. Um, and even in the short track, I was lined up like third or fourth row. And that was a huge difference, um, compared to, to farther back, like, because everyone, they line you up and then with like 30 seconds to go, everyone just kind of budges forward and um and so then like if you pick a good like little slot maybe you're two and a half rows back or three and a half like um yeah you can kind of like wiggle your way up.
0: Yeah. Is that um with with short track in particular, it seems like you is it full gas the whole time or when you're racing those ones or is it more tactical? Cause it's interesting. The women's field is like so competitive. Um, I know the men's field is really competitive too, but the women's field has like a huge amount of depth. I feel like, like you go first through 10th and it's kind of like anybody's game, like anybody could win. Whereas in the men's race, it does seem like there is, you know, maybe two or three that are likely to win. And then the rest are quite close, but it, 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 Are you? Is it just full gas the whole time, or are you? Are people actually pacing in that race too?
1: Yeah, the short tracks are pretty much full gas the whole time. And one thing that I I got to race, I think just only two of them, and um, I never quite mastered. Like I always had a a strategy before, or I was really like thinking about it a lot. And then in the race, I just remember like everything happened so fast. Like you think about everything happening faster in a cross country race, but compacted into 20 minutes. And then I would finish the race and I'd be like, dang it. Like, I, I didn't even think about that. I was so like, <laughs> there was so much else going on, you know? Um, but definitely like it starts super hard. And then there's, there's laps like halfway through where groups kind of settle um but only for like 200 meter stretches you know not and then somebody throws an attack again but it's super tactical and it's really fun when um you're able to be in that action and i think for me i i wasn't quite there uh i was kind of always like dangling off the back of those packs and just not really playing my my cards really well but that's just one thing that in short track, especially like experience is so helpful. Um, so every race I was like learning so much and, um, you know, maybe kind of frustrated at the end for not having like done everything perfectly, but that's just racing. Um, so yeah. Yeah.
0: It, this is feels comforting to know that like, uh, even you Cecilia, like you're not <laughs> like, like the rest of us are just flying by the seat of our pants and races, you know, <laughs> and hoping everything goes well. Uh, it feels good to know that on the technical side, the last question that more asked, uh, are what have done to become such a good bike handler? Um, I don't know if she follows you on social media, um, you and then your partner Cole, um, Cole always jokes around that, like, uh, that you ride the technical stuff first to show him what's up, um, and how to do things. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that. Uh, uh, you are really good. Like tech, I feel like technicality is a strength of yours, like riding technical terrain. Uh, how'd you build that? was that you were, have you always been good at it since you were a kid?
1: Yeah, it's for sure. Um. I see it as a strength of mine, and and I love it. Like the more technical the the race courses, the the more I usually like them or can can find my confidence on them. Um, I think I grew up with two older brothers, and we were always like kind of on our bikes. I was just chasing them around, and so I think that I um, that helped for sure. Maybe building some ego in there and just trying <laughs> to keep up with them, um, but then. Yeah, really, like especially right now, um, she asked like what I do to kind of maintain that um, is just riding with with people who are better than me. And I went to school in Durango at Fort Lewis College. And um, that that is a time that I can really look back to that I think really helped me develop my my skills and my confidence because I just had a really good core group of friends who We, they just shredded and we would just go out on our mountain bikes and, and ride super technical trails. Um, often we'd go down like to the desert for some warmer riding and just ride really technical terrain all day. Um, so now I don't have that exact, uh, scenario around me, but I really try to, first of all, train like 90% on my mountain bike. Um, So even even on the road, just if I have an interval or sprint session, like just having that position on the mountain bike um, is really helpful because it's that's how I race. Um, And then also trying to have like one or two days a week that I just go out and and ride trail and try to just challenge myself and ride stuff that scares me. Um, I think that's really important for me to to keep that like as a um a commonality in my training from week to week uh but it definitely helps to have like people with people go with people that give you confidence um and and will ride that stuff with you so yeah my boyfriend Cole is definitely a a, a really great person for me to do that uh, also my coach and just like having um a really good group of people that that gives you confidence and you go out and you challenge yourself and, and ride stuff that scares you. Um, and then also downhill Strava segments. Um, it's <laughs> something I try to like mix into my training when I can, but it's another really good way to just challenge myself, especially like, uh, in the off season when you're not racing and, you know, that the race speed of descending is a lot different than, uh, training. And I definitely struggle to find that when I'm just training by myself, I don't want to like go push super hard or or risk a lot, especially if I'm like in the forest by myself. Um, but just (laughs) having people with you is really nice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good tips. Um, Ivy, did you work on skills at all this year? Do you do like you, you've been racing cross for so long. So do you just not work on them anymore? Or what did you do for skill development? Oh,
2: I, I'm (laughs) always working on them. (laughs) That's, I think why I like off-road riding so much now is because I feel like that's something that I can always get better at. You know, it's really hard to make big gains in fitness at, at this stage or kind of ever make huge leaps, but, um, it feels really good to feel like you can always be growing your technical abilities and um you know and like find a feature that scares you and session it until you can ride it and um yeah I'm always working on that and I do so by uh being underbiked as much as I can it's it's worked <laughs> out pretty well for me <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah forces your hands right and I guess it makes mm-hmm. sense as you're racing cross like you're you're constantly under underbiked with cross and that sort of mm-hmm. stuff chad uh uh, before we move on, uh, are there any points that you want to bring up or anything else on this? You and I are always watching these races unfold live. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but is there anything else that you want to point out on this or ask?
3: Uh, not, not quite yet. Cause there are some things that roll over or fold into what we're just about to talk about that civilian mentioned. That's it's, uh, she set me up very nicely.
0: Well done, the pro podcaster <laughs> Sevilla. Um yeah. uh let's go to Dimitri's question then. Uh, Dimitri says, Dear podcast crew, in episode three sixty-three, you extensively discuss switching to a parasympathetic state after training. Chat'll explain what we're talking about. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're gonna explain all that in just a bit. On a related note, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts about favoring a parasympathetic state, and I'm gonna screw that up very by the way, every time I say it. Uh <laughs> during a workout or race. Is that possible? Is that something that can be done consciously? Can one stay in a predominantly parasympathetic state during an endurance ride, or can one transition back to a mostly parasympathetic state in the long recovery valleys of us, of a sprint workout? What about the fleeting recovery periods during Spanish needle? That's one of our workouts, uh, in the train road catalog. It's, uh, one of those on off sort of workouts that you get. It's quite difficult. Um, actually it sounds a lot like what civilian did today. So, um, civilian <laughs> was mentioning that she's going to have track hack, uh, throughout the podcast, uh, because of the hard work that she did. So, um, yeah, <laughs> there we go. Uh, if that, uh, if that is possible, are there ways to favor this transition and what would be the benefits in doing this? I remember Amber mentioning passing once that she, in passing once that she practiced some habits to enter a relaxed or parasympathetic state during the lulls of a race. I don't believe this was discussed in more detail, and would very much appreciate a revisiting of this topic. I believe this may have some big implications toward the number of vol or toward the total volume an athlete can sustain, and the quality of one's workouts. I do believe many of us end up associating training with a sympathetic state and end up stuck there. And I also believe this may contribute to, um, people having a narrative that their training is too hard. So in this case, they're asking, um, what is the, like, what's the possibility of doing this, Chad? Uh, is it possible to flip this switch from parasympathetic to sympathetic like mid workout And is Mm -hmm. that a favorable thing to do?
3: This is a very insightful and detailed and uh, just knowledgeable question. So thank you, Dimitri, for setting me up so well, giving me so much to work with. Yeah. Um, So it's probably best to start with a brief recap of the autonomic nervous system so that we're all on the same page, but basically part of the peripheral nervous system uh, that's responsible for our automatic functioning or vegetative functioning is this autonomic nervous system. Uh, it's it's largely unconsciously uh, – or largely unconsciously regulates so many of our bodily functions and systems. So, I mean, digestion, uh, the immune system, <clears throat> our respiratory rate, our heart rate, things that are very applicable to exercise. And it does so by way of, at least in part, maybe entirely, the vagus nerve, which is the cranial nerve and it interface, interfaces with our parasympathetic nervous system. So, what we're talking about today. So, what exactly is, is the parasympathetic side of – this ANS. Well, the ANS is comprised of basically two subsystems. So the sympathetic nervous system, which we've talked about many, many times, it governs our fight or flight responses. And then the parasympathetic nervous system, which is kind of the other side of the same coin, and it governs the rest and digest responses. And where we reside in this whole subsystem spectrum determines our autonomic nervous system, our ANS predominance. So Dimitri nailed that. But the, the parasympathetic nervous system is actually, news to me, comprised of two distinct subsystems, the ventral and the dorsal, at, at least if you are uh, an advocate or proponent of Stephen Porges and his polyvagal theory of the central nervous system, which basically says that our ANS, our autonomic nervous system, is influenced by the peripheral nervous system's afferent stimuli. So that's the information that comes into, into our nervous system, into our brain. And specifically how we react to these, these afferent stimuli is to varying degrees by this argument adaptable. And I linked to the paper because there's a ton more detail, the, the neural input that we get from our face muscles and our head muscles and and all these things. It's quite interesting. So if you want to get in the weeds, absolutely take a poke at that. It's, it's pretty, pretty in depth.
0: We'll put that in the description for people, um, for this podcast on YouTube and everything else. And if you're watching this on YouTube thumbs up right now, Uh, that would really help. Yeah, on chat.
3: Okay, so the the polyvagal theory in a nutshell says that there are three states of the the nervous system. We and we have more control over them than we might think. So, the sympathetic nervous system again, that's the fight or flight. The dorsal parasympathetic nervous system is is shut down. That's effectively your deer in headlights sort of response. You just you're overwhelmed by whatever input to the point where you're incapacitated. And then the ventral par, uh, parasympathetic nervous system. So the ventral PNS is is termed the safe and social end of things and and i find this latter nervous system to be the most interesting and certainly the most relevant to us as endurance athletes and so according to this polyvagal theory that by favoring the state we experience just improvements across the board better digestion better immune immune response better circulation we can affect typically favorably our heart rate our breathing rate most importantly I I argue, is that we feel settled, grounded, and we're in a position that we can learn and connect. So essentially, the polyvagal theory's logic is that we can teach ourselves to feel safe, even in situations that are anything but. And the extreme end of the polyvagal theory actually demonstrates this when it looks at trauma because it says that trauma is not just in the head and in our memories. It also gets stored as, quote, habitual reflexive state, end quote, of the nervous system. So the further logic here would be that we can actually condition our responses. We can sway the state of our autonomic nervous system. We can basically shift our psychology and we do it through exposure, through familiarity, through competence, through skill that grows and grows and grows. So a relevant question would, would be, and Dimitri basically asks this, can we consciously manipulate our autonomic state and specifically, can we increase our parasympathetic state, our vagal tone and the two are effectively synonymous. Uh, If you look at WHOOP's marketing site, one of the resources that is actually quite useful uh, answering this question, uh, they talk about using breathing exercises, massages, omega-3s. So there are some dietary influences, cold and heat therapy, finally a use for cryotherapy, and, of course, (laughs) exercise. (laughs) Exercise is – I mean we know this – the exercise training, the more fit we get, it increases our parasympathetic tone. But typically this is an, an emphasis on the parasympathetic tone during rest. But that's even up to a point. Um, One study looked at world-class athletes uh, during the peak of a hard training block, and this was a block that was directly preceding world-level competition, and the researchers noted that very intensive training actually shifted the autonomic tone. The, The takeaway being is that excessive training can shift the tone, but it's for us to decide if this is favorable. Because the upside is it sets the stage for, for many competitively desirable traits. You know, we, we experience and are ready for wide ranges in heart rate, wide ranges in cardiac output, uh, blood flow redistribution and muscle perfusion that's highly specific in nature. But clearly, this is not chronically desirable. And this is yet another reason that we peak. We, we can't stay here for long. We start to shift that tone over time. And it absolutely, if, if it's chronically on the sympathetic side of things, you know, we, we all sorts of bad things start to happen. So, um, continuing on with whoop as a reference, but also a number of other resources, different ways to increase your vagal tone were listed and include, but certainly not, not a comprehensive list, laughing, sex, chanting, gargling, and singing humming, because who knew (laughs) that the vagus nerve actually runs through the larynx and the pharynx so we can affect it. Uh, Light exposure, all of these are considered manners for increasing our vagal tone. On top of that, there's a focus on gut health. So use of probiotics, fasting, effective hydration. These are all purportedly things that can influence favorably our vagal tone. So finally, to, to Dimitri's question, can we transition back to or at least toward a sympathetic state? And then my question, when might we want to? So in terms of pre-race and, and I peeked at the notes and I saw Sevilla has something that's well pre-race. So I'm just going to focus on the bits that are like directly pre-race, like start line advice. Um, one of them is diaphragmatic breathing and that's, 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 it's general, but there's a specific one that I've glommed onto of late that I, I really like. It's five, 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 five breathing, where you basically inhale for five, hold for five, exhale for five, hold for five. Even one of those it ha- has an Im- impact just immediately as it's, it's I don't know. It, it surprises me every time how simply one of those breaths changes my headspace and, and just how I feel in general. Um, and, and I do feel that this is perhaps our most accessible pre-race method. And you're standing there on the start line. This could be one of those situations where you try to remove yourself temporarily from the situation, focus on your breathing a bit, and bring yourself back into your to your own head. But that brings me to the contemplation of a particular phenomenon that's uh, it's called co-regulation. And it affects a lot of systems, but in particular, we're talking about the nervous system. So we can consciously or subconsciously take cues from those around us. And this isn't just limited to racing. This is life in general, and it can influence how anxious or calm we'll we'll end up being. So my advice in a pre-race situation would be try to focus on the f- those fellow athletes who are manifesting – Anything you see that is, that, you know, resembles how you want to feel. So, you know, don't focus on the nervous twitchy people, the people who are telling you how not ready for the race they are, or the people who look downright fearful, but look at, I mean, I can think of particular riders who I would look at because they're always calm. They're always looking forward to the race. They were joking with others. They, you know, it could be argued they didn't have their game faces on, but, you know, to, to each their own, I like to feel relaxed at the start line. I don't like to feel quite that wound up. I saved that for the race. So, so let's talk about in race. And uh, what I found most interesting was, and this could be pre-race, I suppose, also the simple act of seeing yourself from an outside perspective. So you just kind of look at you from afar sort of thing, try to remove yourself from yourself to ironically enough, center yourself, bring you, bring you back to the moment, bring you back to yourself to calm you. And uh, for, for me, this is especially relatable. I find it very effective. And then secondly, in a race and prior uh, recognizing your triggers and we're all familiar with triggers, you know, things that set us off typically in a negative manner. And, and one researcher or writer, or, uh, physiologist, whatever, uh, used the term glimmers. And these are things that move you, uh, toward safety as they put it. So I, I find this especially interesting cause it's kind of both, both sides of the things that set you off either unfavorably or in the case of glimmers favorably. And then when it comes to the the humming and the laughing and the singing, I don't think any of that seems particularly outlandish when you're on the bike. I mean, there are situations where you can be calm enough where you could kind of hum your exhale, or I don't know, sing to yourself lightly. I hope, but you can. <laughs> if, if these things work for you, why not? Why not give them a shot? But you know, they're, they're simplistic in nature. So that said, I do want to remind everyone that the, the one study in particular encapsulated this quite well. is Martin Buchheit, Paul Larson, and Saeed IMEDI. They did a study several, several years back where they demonstrated that repeated sprint exercise highly impairs our, our parasympathetic reactivation. and In this case, and, and maybe in all cases, it was attributed to processes tied to anaerobic energy contribution. But they, they also pointed out that the more intense the activity, the more delayed the vagal restoration. So simple point here and an answer to Dimitri's very direct question, hard no on Spanish needle. I just – those are 15 <laughs> on, 15 off. That I just don't think 15 seconds is enough time to reestablish your failed tone. I don't think you'd want to anyway. You kind of just need to stay elevated in a situation such as that. But the real simple takeaway here is that the more you wind yourself up, well, the longer it's going to take you to wind yourself back down. And then finally, I'll close with: you got to consider the potential drawbacks in in dialing down your more sympathetic or fight or flight responses. I mean, those responses are highly purposeful; they're in place for the very specific role of protecting us from from all forms of danger.
0: Yeah, or uh, and even protecting ourselves from bad outcomes in a race, in a way, like like you sure. know what I mean. Like it's it's still and bad doesn't necessarily have to mean danger. We perceive not achieving whatever the goals we have in the race as a bad outcome. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it can, your
3: goals, uh, your perceived goals for everyone else. If, if you feel expectations weighing upon you and you don't live up to those expectations, Mm
0: -hmm. which
2: is why I think it's interesting that you mentioned taking cues from, uh, others in the race and the state that they're in and Mm -hmm. deciding, you know, who to surround yourself with or who to take cues from in a race scenario. And it made me think about, um, just like the nature of being on a team and Mm. um, being on a team with a director where there's a race plan and, um, you know, how much stress and anxiety that causes for the whole group going into a race to, you know, feel the pressure of like, this is your role and here's how you know you must execute it. And Mm -hmm. um, it makes me wonder like how many races I messed up. It's got to be high dozens because I (laughs) wasn't – yeah, exactly. Because I wasn't able to get in that parasympathetic state and just chill out and trust myself, and instead I let myself be in this anxious, like fight or flight moment all the time yeah. during the race, and, and, just like waiting for, waiting for um, the time for us to execute the plan and sure. anticipating how it would go wrong and trying to anticipate how we would react. It was wild.
3: Mm. But how hard is that to resist when you're surrounded by that? I mean, Sevilia mentioned riding with people who give her confidence in order for her to, you know, push her bounds. And that makes perfect sense. It's the same thing with your team. If you have complete confidence in your team, you know that they're going to execute, you feel strongly, they'll execute successfully. That Mm -hmm. just sets you up for success.
2: I think it takes a lot of mutual trust and experience with those people Mm
3: -hmm. to really
2: have confidence in that regard.
0: Yeah. Team could be really beneficial in the sense that you could, it can be a source of confidence and calm and reassurance. Um, and it can be the other side of things too. Uh, Ivy, I'd be, I'd be curious to hear how this has changed for you because you went from pro road racing and being part of teams. And now, uh, you race individually in the sense that you're, whether it's m- mountain biking, cyclocross or gravel, even, um, now, mm-hmm. um, uh, you're racing alone. Uh, we did a relay together. Uh, that was the (laughs) vibes were fantastic. It was a ton of fun, but has it changed at all this whole concept of like the, the dependencies in a race that could cause stress? Have you made changes or changed the way that you approach racing and found it to be favorable?
2: Yeah, I had to. Um, and I'm, I'm still working on it for sure. Um, but I feel like with cycle cross specifically, there are too many moments for you to, make a mistake and stress out about it and, um, fixate on it and not recover. And I'm thinking about what civilian was mentioning about, um, you know, the chaos of the first lap of a race and being able to move forward. And, um, so I, I really had to like work on that and change, uh, how I address what is causing me that in race anxiety and stress from team expectations Team outcome, individual roles to how do I manage these individual instances that are completely unavoidable during a race and stay calm about it. Um, mm. it's hard. Yeah. I don't I don't have a secret formula. I don't hum or sing to myself or anything.
0: <laughs> I mean that's like kind of like the the reason for ohms and stuff, right? When you're doing right. yoga. That's one of the reasons that they, they talk about that. Um, but
2: I think just knowing that you want yeah. to be in that state and anticipating mm-hmm that, um, you, it can go the other way and knowing how you want to, what you want your headspace to be like when you're racing, just, you know, keeping that in mind intentionally is, is a very significant part of it.
0: Yeah. Great. Uh, great points. Sevilia, how about you? Um, what do you do to influence this sort of, or to bring in this parasympathetic state or to lean to the sympathetic side intentionally for racing?
1: Yeah. What? I mean, really good points. From everyone. I think um one thing Chad said was that like sometimes you you want that, you know, that kind of fight or flight, especially when you're in a, a race situation. But I would say that like this is all just kind of part of mindfulness training, right? Um, and in a race, like in an instance when you're on the on a descent, you're trying to bring your heart rate down, recover as as much as you can before the next um, uphill or whatever, that that would definitely be a scenario where I would, I really try to, um, train myself to, you know, remember that because you can, it's so easy to be like so stressed. And I mean, you're pushing the limit on the descent and maybe you get to the bottom and you didn't even think about your breath or your heart rate. But like, if you have that awareness or mindfulness, um, there's so much to be gained there, I feel like, because you could be spending all that. Do you just be more efficient, you know, um, spending your energy focused on on these things that can help you recover faster or better? Um, but also another really good thing you guys were talking about was um, surrounding yourself with good people, good energy. This is something that is so important for me. Um, and i've I've noticed it like when you're at, at different events um you know if there's different energy like it really affects the athlete and and how you uh prepare or or think about your race or um just kind of your state of mind before the race so um just being around people who are who who are really good for you like maybe it's different for everybody but Um, who just, you know, make you happy, make you chill and, and just, uh, just in a really good headspace. Um, I think that's super key.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great points. The, the, we joke about this all the time that like race, Jonathan is like a different Jonathan. Um, I think people expect him to be like bubbly and sociable and everything else on the line of a race and. Uh, That's not what I need going into a race. And that pulls me out of the state that I need to be in. Instead, I am able to really effectively dwell within myself and find that balance and that peace that I need before to be able to focus before a race. And that's what's beneficial for me. It's going to look different for every person. And sometimes the very unfortunate thing happens where the person like me lines up next to the person that wants to the, you know, chat and tell their whole entire life story, uh, throughout the whole race and look like that's, that's just what happens. Um, but if you can, it is something where if you're dealing with like race anxiety and situations like this, it's very helpful to consider who you line up next to, or, and, and it's totally okay to be like, Hey, do you mind if I line up next to you to ask somebody beforehand, if you know that there's somebody that you would like. And then just roll together because you know that that person's going to give you the energy match that you need. Uh, that can be really helpful and in, in situations where you can't control that it's really beneficial to start to define a process that you can put into place where you can create the right environment, regardless of what you do, um, or regardless of what's around you, forgive me. Um, that can be really beneficial. I want to kind of get into the training side of this though, and talk about during workouts, because I do think there's something to this, the more successful athletes that I've seen and Chad, you, you instruct this with your workout text, uh, very, uh, very diligently. A lot of the time you'll finish a work or finish an interval a work interval and you go into a rest interval and in those rest intervals, it will very quickly encourage you to embrace the rest and to recognize the rest and to, uh, rather than dwelling on, oh my goodness, that was so hard. Instead, it's like, okay, now it's rest time. And it's really demarcating like that change. And I've noticed that with the best athletes that I've seen train, they are very good at at being up when they need to be up and down when they need to be down. And they, they manage that well. Sevilla, is there anything that you do during your workouts to – to calm yourself between intervals. Uh, I don't know if it's things you say, things you do, things you think of beforehand.
1: Yeah, no, I was actually just thinking about this. Um, I know Chad said, maybe not, maybe it's, it's not super beneficial between like a a workout where you're doing 15 15. But I was thinking about like, you know, when you do a sprint and then if you have, you know, a minute, two minutes of rest, um, That's definitely a time where I really try to be, I mean, that's just as much as of an interval as the sprint was, you know? So during that time to really focus on like bringing your heart rate down and, um, just spinning your legs, keeping the cadence up. Um, I mean, for sure there's like physical tactics that you can kind of, um, develop that will just trigger yourself. Like I know some people will like squeeze the handlebar a little bit and that's like their trigger to to, um, like relax and, and calm yourself. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I don't really think I, I don't really have any specific, um, like physical triggers that I use, but definitely like breathing heart rate and really just trying to like take diaphragmatic breaths, um, during that, the rest period is super, super key, but it's hard. Like I think Ivy said, like it's a, it's really, hard to uh it's a habit that you need to build and it's it's really difficult, so it takes like a lot of practice and um repeating it and so it becomes you know n- natural for you because you wanna make it as easy as possible because when you're in a race you don't wanna it's not like an added thing you you have to do it it should just be second nature you know so mm-hmm. it's definitely it takes a lot of uh, yeah mindfulness.
2: Mm -hmm. That's a good point to imagine being a super anxious person in training and, you know, practice races or race rides or something and then getting in an actual race scenario and be like, okay, now I'm going to assign this to myself that I want to be in this state. Like (laughs) not a good strategy. (laughs) No.
0: (laughs) Along those lines though, I've uh, I bet a lot of people listening or will relate to this. Like you're uh, having a hard time at work, or at home with your family or in your personal life in one way or another. And then you're doing your interval workout. And as soon as you're done, like it's easy to focus on the work during the work interval, but then as soon as you're done, it's also really easy to during those rest intervals to revisit ruminating over the stress in your life. I've had days where I do that and my performance potential drops substantially where it's like, like on Thursdays, for example, when we do the podcast live, that sort of thing, it takes a lot of energy from me. And then afterward I review every single podcast that we record. And so I have a list of things that we want to do. And when I don't do a great job, then I'm, I'm really thinking about what I want to do. And I also struggle with feeling bad about that. And I think, man, I'm really upset at myself and I need to change that. That's something that I'm working on when that transcends the normal living space into my workouts. And when that is my headspace during rest intervals, I don't have the mental fortitude during the proximate work intervals that I would normally have to be able to actually, you know, stress my body to the point that it needs to make adaptations and improvements, right? So that either means I just don't get much from the workout. It's like water bouncing off a wet sponge, or I just can't do the workout. And this is something that I think a lot of us probably deal with. Like life is hard in different ways. And then we add training on top of it. Uh, and one thing that I have found really helpful is before I go out and do my workout, if I have something that's really difficult, I don't know, this works for me, maybe I'm simple brain, but I, I write down my concerns beforehand. I like physically write them down on a pad and then I leave them there. And then I go out and I do my workout and I try to just completely disconnect from that space and then when i'm done i can and i can tell myself hey the problems are back there you wrote them down they're back there they're at home i can come back to them at another point um don't don't worry about them now it's okay you can't change them right now just focus on what you can do right now with the workout so that's something that's been really helpful for me um in, in between those ones the the chad you also and Seville, you mentioned diaphragmatic breathing that like making sure that you get deep breaths after an interval is hugely helpful. And that's something you always comment on in your workout text too, Chad. It's running people to belly breathe instead of the shallow, tight shoulder breaths that we take. Uh, that's a huge, huge effect. And it's funny. I never like look at my heart rate during an interval, but during a rest interval, I almost (laughs) always do. Uh, because that's when I look at it more than anything, and it's because I am actively focusing on that with the intent of driving it down through relaxation. Right. Um, and that's another thing that, that kind of helps me. Ivy, do you have anything that you use amidst like cyclocross too? Because you don't only have, and cyclocross, you have the chaos of all the different elements that you're riding through, whether it's sand off cambers, ruts and mud run ups, uh, mm-hmm. the chaos from the crowd, all that stuff. But it, do you do anything mid race or mid workout to calm Fire, yourself? fireball
3: hand ups? Fireball. <laughs> fireball yeah that's
0: a reference to last week's uh, podcast episode yeah yeah uh
2: yeah i do and um for me it's really it's really simple it's just a big big deep breath um that keeps me from doing those shy, uh sorry tight shallow um upper breaths that you were talking about um and I need to do it so much in cyclocross because of the way that course are segmented and to really dissect each feature from one another. If I don't um, refocus and snap out of whatever stressful state I was in because of a sand section or um, a run up or a tricky descent, um, I can't effectively address the next one. Um, Mm. So that's my strategy in cyclocross.
0: Nice. Chad, do you have any uh, tips that you've done? you've with so many crits in particular that you've raised where it's like attacks and counterattacks nonstop and how mm-hmm. to stay calm amidst all that.
3: Yeah. I think the reason I harp so much on <clears throat> the pre race or uh, at the line sort of recommendations is because that's what set me up best. So if I didn't have my head on straight starting the race, it was really hard to get it on straight in the midst of the race. So if I. Come into it feeling good. If I can you know, keep my mood light and keep myself, you know, uh, again, out of myself but within myself, and uh, talk to the right people, and uh, just just feel ready in in a number of ways going into a race, everything seemed to kind of head the direction I wanted it to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, there there are too many times you could l- you line up <clears throat> and for whatever reason you just didn't have it on the day, and and ugh, it's such a hard thing to turn around. So I, it, it's got to be it's got to be there from the start or I'm kind of basically setting myself up to fail.
0: Yeah. There are two mountain bike tips I want to give out in particular uh, for cross country racing especially. So if you watch riders like uh Richie Rude is a really good example of this, the Enduro World Champ also trainer road user, super awesome um podcast listener, but uh when Richie is descending, uh, that 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 man can descend with violence like unheard of. Uh like what he can do through stuff is just impressive. But if you watch him in between anything that's technical, he is in it's, it's like a total change in his body position and he does two different things that I think are really helpful. Number one, he sits when he can, and that's something that I feel like in particular, we don't do enough on the cross country side. Like you can drop that dropper and you can sit down and oh my gosh, it just feels amazing Uh, because in a descent, we don't always have to be on. The tricky part is your bike gives you less like wiggle room. An enduro bike sure it gives you a whole lot more wiggle room. Hit a bump or something when you're sitting down and you have more suspension to deal with more relaxed angles to handle it. <clears throat> but it's finding little pockets of time to just pop a sit and then after that you can pop back up, you know, at another point, but it really helps. That's a small thing, and if you look at like the best uh, even downhill racers too, they're really good at finding those moments to do that. The other thing that, uh, I see them do. So there's the sitting side of things, but then they also find this ability to, um, uh, to like find peace on the course. And what I mean by that is they will let the course be technical where it needs to be technical, but then in other spots, they might even take a different line to allow either in front of or behind that to allow themselves to reset. And this is something where us mountain bikers, we can get caught up in, we're really focused on the a line. So really tense coming into the a line. Then we're tense coming out of the a line. How about after that, you at least find a spot to like, okay, so after this technical thing, where am I going to reset? Like, where am I going to take the breath? relax my shoulders, maybe straighten up the legs and, and kind of do that hinged high hinged position that you see, uh, pro racers like Sevilla do when they're descending and not going over something super technical. Like where are you actually going to take the break? And that's a really helpful thing. If you are planning your breaks as much as you're And I say breaks is in like a rest, if you're planning those amidst chaos, just as you're planning on when you're going to set up for something technical. Uh, then that's going to be once again, if you add it all up over the course of the race, you might get 15 to 20 seconds of rest over the course of the race that you wouldn't have otherwise, um, small little things that can go a long ways, um, that we can learn from the pros. So I bet there's a lot of other things we do subconsciously that like, and that particularly pro athletes do that we don't even identify, right? Chad, that help us get uh, that. And push us more toward that parasympathetic side of things amidst chaos and mm-hmm. a race. Yeah. Cause it's, it's necessary. So
3: I think it, it, it takes shape whether you recognize it or not, but I just think you give yourself an advantage if you do recognize it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Super interesting question. Thanks, Dimitri. Um, mm-hmm. I dig it. That's good. Okay. This one's from America. Uh, very appropriate having, uh, having Sevilla here. If you ever have a currently racing world cup XC pro on. We do, uh, can you ask them how they approach <laughs> racing a cross country or a short track race, and then a cross country race within 48 hours, what is their nutrition and training like before and in between, and how do they manage their ambitions or motivations after surprising results, good or bad in short track? So that's a, uh, first things, our first question with this one, Sevilia. What is your nutrition and and training like in between those races when you do short track on Fridays and then you race cross country on Sundays?
1: Yeah, good question. Um so mainly my nutrition is just focused on fueling enough and making sure I'm not depleting my, myself. Um when you race short track on Friday, it's I see it as like a opener or I use it as an opener for XC on Sunday. Um, So I'll definitely ride in the morning. Like it's usually on course, an easy course ride, maybe with some sprints to just keep the body open, make sure everything is still awake. Um, And then fueling like breakfast, small lunch, and then pre-race meal. Um, And then our race is quite late. It's like 5.30 in the the evening. Um, So, Get ready for that race, and then uh, recovery. Like super focused on recovery, using all these these little tactics that we just talked about with the parasympathetic nervous system, um, just to like yeah, relax as much as possible. It's really hard to sleep usually that night because you're so jacked up on caffeine and adrenaline, <laughs> um, and then you get home at like eight thirty p.m. and you're supposed to sleep. So it's it's a challenge. I'm I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, but then Saturday is like a pretty easy day because I'm super already super open from the short track. Um, but the big focus is on fueling for, for on Saturday. Um, so I am trying to shoot for, uh, like 10 grams of carbs per kilogram of body weight. So that's around like 600 grams of carbs for me throughout the day um and that is kind of what i shoot for uh pre the day before every race um just to make sure like i am topped off and not depleted in any way going into to cross country um so yeah so easy easy pretty easy ride on the course and then um then it's race day already i mean the the short track the weekends go by so fast when you race short track uh because it's just action and then already it's the next day that's cross country. And yeah, it's, it's like a whirlwind. It's, it's crazy. Yeah.
0: What do you typically, when you're getting in, like, what do you eat in between the races, uh, it may change because you might be traveling and not have like access to a kitchen or something like your or ingredients like you typically would, but what sort of food items would you be eating between those races on Saturday?
1: Yeah, a lot of, uh, pasta. Uh, rice and morning i'm i'm usually like i like making pancakes and forever i would travel with uh, this pancake mix that you can only find in the states um but then one time i forgot it at the hotel and i was screwed so i was like this isn't sustainable i can't i can't count on this anymore um so now i just make like this pancake mix with uh like oat flour and banana mash it up with some egg and that's like my pre-race um my pre-race meal and also breakfast like for saturday morning i don't know i, I love pancakes so i do that a lot and then rice yeah i try to keep like the my fat um to a minimum on those pre-race or just around the racing because it just will slow down the process um and it'll make me feel fuller and then i am i'm too full to eat the carbs that i actually need Uh, So, yeah, definitely like pretty, pretty, not super exciting meals, but definitely pasta and rice is just high carb (laughs) and bread, anything. (laughs) Yeah, I I don't it's not I don't make it too complicated. Um, And in every country, like you have access to different sort of stuff. So I really tried to become like more and more relax about it over the years because it's just different, uh, in every country. And, um, yeah, you can't always get exactly what you eat at home, but it's all the same thing. You know,
0: Krusty's needs to go global for <laughs> pancakes. <laughs> um, they should sponsor mountain bikers. Seriously. The amount of, uh, or, or at least Keegan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Although that might bankrupt them with the amount of uh, pancake mix that guy eats. Um, <laughs> Ivy, this is not too dis and we're going to get back to like the dealing with the results, bad or good thing. But I wanted to ask you Ivy, uh, with your experience with road racing and then cyclocross, cause cyclocross many times have day has like back to back sort of racing scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you try to eat uh, in between races like that?
2: I mean, I feel like civilian really nailed it in terms of goals and, um, you know, the spectrum of things that we should be eating. So I don't have a lot to add in that regard. Um, but I, When she was describing that, I was thinking about something I've changed to my routine this cross-season that has helped me a lot, which is better planning when you think about the logistics of two-day races and um, the time you finish your race versus um, the time you actually get home and can prepare a meal And so I have this like silly little lunchbox or Tupperware that I travel with and make sure that I'm, um, that's something that I added this season that has helped me a lot to make sure that I'm planning and have some foresight to see that like, all right, by the time we finish and wash the bikes and load up and drive back to our hotel or Airbnb or whatever, it's going to be several hours potentially. Um, and so making sure that I don't ever let myself get in that depleted state and, and always plan on having good, high quality carbs and food around, um, in some degree has helped me a lot.
0: Nice. Good approach. Lunch boxes. Um, <laughs> uh, we all, we all need them. Even when we were kids, we still need them. Um, what about dealing with the results when short track doesn't go well, Sevilia, how do you reset for the race? And then on the other side, if it goes really well, um, how do you manage those emotions and everything going into the cross country?
1: Yeah, well, for me, short track was always like a uh, super exciting. And the when I finally had enough points to to get into short track, it was I really felt like I had nothing to lose because even a a bad result in short track would be like a fourth row call up on Sunday and that was better than what I had before. So um, I really felt like, and I raced, like I had nothing to lose. And I think that that was, um, a really good mindset, at least for me to have, because it just gave me like confidence. Um, and yeah, I mean, XCO is, is, it feels like a different, it's a, just a different day, a different event. Like I remember the last, uh, the last short track of the season, this past year in Valdesol, and it was Friday evening, and it just felt like a party. Kind of everyone was there and excited and like just kind of a little bit more relaxed. You have, you feel like the vibe is a little bit more relaxed than XE. Um, and so yeah, Sunday is just a a a new, it's it's just a different day. It's a different race. Um, and everybody has different goals. I think people focus a lot more on XE. And some people at worlds like didn't even race the short track, um, and focus on the cross country. So it's, it's a different, it's a different event, but for me, I, I really just felt like I had nothing to lose, um, because I would have had a better, a better start position or at least just the opportunity to get a better start position was, um, was better for me than just sitting at home watching the race on Red Bull, which was brutal, um, (laughs) when, when that happens. So, yeah, I don't know if that's a really good explanation, but that's kind of how my experience. Let the
0: races be separate and let them be themselves. Right. Um, instead of letting one define the outcome of the other. Uh, yeah,
1: I I think it's also like, um, back to what we were talking about in the beginning, like letting what you can't control just go because there's no chance you're going to let a short track a, a bad short track race dictate how your whole world cup weekend goes, you know, that would just be way too much of a waste of, uh, yeah, everything for yourself. So yeah, for me, I just, I don't even let my mind go there and anything that happens on in short track is just, it happens. And Sunday's a new day. You have Saturday to reset and get the, the good feelings again. So Yeah.
0: Is that, um, Ivy, have you found any tips on when you have a bad race coming into another one and managing that?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's important to let yourself acknowledge when you have a bad race and there's a really distinctive line between acknowledging something that is maybe, setting you back a little bit or preventing you from performing at that time in your, in your stage of training and racing versus letting it completely debilitate you and prevent you from trying again. Um, so for me, like with so much illness and a rough season, it was important for me to go into a race and, and not have a ton of expectations and see like, okay, I'm still not totally healthy, and this is where I'm at right now, but then not let it prevent me from starting the next day because I assumed the outcome was going to be the same. It might be a little better, um, but I didn't let it completely wreck me. So if that if that kind of makes sense, you have to treat the events separately, but it's okay to acknowledge that there might be something, um, or it's okay to calibrate where you're at and align your expectations accordingly.
0: Mm. Yeah. Chad, did you find anything helpful, um, with this sort of scenario? Because crit racing, once again, emphasizes this sort of like quick turnaround thing where you might race even multiple times in a day, but not uncommonly multiple times throughout the weekend.
3: I was never very hard on myself with, with the, the, the lower performance races. I mean, if I didn't get it exactly right, or if I knew coming into it, I wasn't quite there just for whatever reason, didn't perform well on the day. I I carried very little of that, if any, into the next day It's pretty easy to let go. I think I had enough, enough success and enough not success to recognize that you win some, you lose some.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I have to, I have to break down what went wrong or else it it sticks and stays with me. So, um, I try to externalize that. So when something goes, when something, when I expectation does not match reality from a race and something. Mm happened, I sit down and I go, okay, so like, why did it happen? Um, and then I write it down and then in many cases, just because that happened, the specific thing occurred in that race, there's zero guarantee that that's going to happen again in a subsequent race. Um, particularly if it's, if it's circumstantial and something that's happened to you, like you got caught behind a crash, something like that. Well, if you write that down and you think about it, then it'll cause you to say, okay, so what could I have done to avoid this? Uh, I could have positioned myself better. I kind of knew that people were probably going to funnel in and, and get really tight in that spot, or that is a really sketchy turn or that, that, you know, that rider was, was not looking confident in that section. I probably shouldn't have followed them. So you can engineer against that, but there's no guarantee that you will avoid or, you know, go through those things. So in that process of breaking things down, it's like, what can I control? What can I control? making sure that I have that outlined. Uh, so then next time, if I get into a race situation that is similar, I'm already building against it, but I, I'm not saying that this is exactly the outcome that is going to happen in the next race. And as a result, I need to prepare for this. It's just like, you kind of take the learnings and put them in the
3: bucket along the way. A lot of what you said actually just reinforces my stance, uh, that, expectations are damning. In most in most respects, they are. Uh, and I think that was maybe why I never was too disappointed if things didn't go perfectly. And maybe I wasn't also like, – I could have been more excited when things went really well. I just uh, found it very easy to go with the flow because I didn't form any hard expectations. The day was going to be what the day was going to be and my impact or my ability to control that was minimal. There are things you can control and and do want to control, but by and large, you put yourself on a race course, she's even a solo time trial, but you get yourself out there with 80, 120, 40 other riders. And there are just too many variables for me to really form any expectations that I'm going to lean, lean into too heavily. Mm.
0: So Zen. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's, That's a
1: good point. Like we always hear the phrase, uh, like that's racing but it's so true. I mean, anything can happen in a race. And if you let those like mechanicals or setbacks get you down, that's not sustainable, you know? So you're always, I, at least I feel like I've learned a lot this year. And I think it it also really comes with just experience and, and having these things happen to you a lot um, and being able to practice that, like shifting that mindset and letting it go and looking towards the next one, taking what you can from that experience and moving on. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely takes practice and experience dealing with that. But what I've learned is that, you know, it's just, it's not going to get you anywhere to stay frustrated about that, whether it's like a, a mechanical, a, a super big, big race for you or something like that. Um, yeah, just like focus on the next one because hopefully like you're going to keep racing for a long time and have a lot more opportunities.
0: For some of us, it's really hard. Like for me, I was like, I don't know how to compete without expectations. Like my whole life, like I was just like, this is the outcome and I will make this happen and when it didn't happen, I would just be crushed when I was younger, um, and I grew up racing in different sports, like, uh, not bicycles, but in, in different sports and for a long time. And, um something that really helps me. If you're in this situation where you're like, well, that's great, Chad. I don't know how to race without expectations. Like, <laughs> like I have expectations and that's just what they are. Uh, one thing that I've done to help with that is, uh, the good old tip that we, uh, have heard many times from Amber have approached the race with curiosity. Um, I think that that's a really good position to adopt. And I'd be really curious to see how, you know, athletes like Elliot Kipchoge or you know, uh, the, these like perennially Michaela Schifrin, like these perennially dominant athletes, like if they, I'm sure they struggle with, with managing expectations when the expectation is for them to win every single time. Right. Like when you're just always on top, um, I'd be really curious for like an athlete, like Nino Schurter, right. Who has had such a long career and so much success. I'd be really curious to see if he approaches the race with curiosity. And if he just says like, let's go out there and give it. And let's see what happens today. Or if he's like, you know, we need to win. And that that's what they do for all of us that aren't paid to be bike racers. Sorry, Sevilla, Ivy and such. Um, but for all of us that aren't paid to be bike racers really doesn't benefit us to put those expectations, weight of expectations on us. Instead, it absolutely benefits us to approach things with curiosity. So it's, um, I'm not going to tell somebody who is paid to race, how to set that up, but for those of us that aren't paid to race. I think it's probably a good way to, to do it. Um, cool. Uh, this next one's from Nick and, uh, based on the time, I think that we might end with, end with this one, we may go for a bonus question. Um, but this one's from Nick. Nick says, I like this one, uh, as cycling coaches, what is the one piece of advice that you wish your riders would do, but don't, or tend to overlook? And what is one hinge habit that you wish your writers would adopt? So a hinge habit for, I had to look that up. I didn't know what that was. Uh, that's referring to a door hinge and its ability to, even though it's a small, somewhat simple structure to enable something large, like a door to open. So like what's a small thing that you do that then enables a larger outcome in your life, uh, Ivy, uh, let's go to you first <laughs> and then we'll go civilian then Chad.
2: Uh, can it just be doing your workouts? No, too, I should clarify. <laughs> um, I should clarify what I mean by that, and I don't mean um, consistent, consistency or um, you know selecting a different workout or changing your inter- interval structure during a workout. Those things are okay. Um, uh, I'm talking about doing the actual work assigned in your workout, and I know that sounds. <laughs> trivial or silly, but it really is such a significant issue um, that we see a ton of athletes have that believe that they're doing an outside workout um, or believe that they're staying to a structure outside. Um, and then when you look at power file, um, it's nowhere near what um, the profile of the workout should look like. And by profile, I mean, you should be able to look at uh, the Structure of the intervals, like the shape of a workout, um, and your power profile of the work intervals should look similar to that—not a bunch of spikes. Um, but mm. it's just—I'm surprised at how much misunderstanding there is surrounding how to train outside, um, and where athletes will look at the power target for for an interval. Say it's 150 watts. Um, and they their power will fluctuate so much, but their normalized power or average power for that duration will be near 150-ish, um, and so they'll think it's okay, and it's not. Um, so many of those intervals are designed so intentionally to for you to be in a certain state for a certain duration, and by not allowing yourself to do that or enforcing that for yourself as an athlete, you're really shorting yourself on the purpose of the workout and shorting yourself on getting faster. Um, So the hinge habit that I wish they would adopt is, um, you know, look very closely at what your outside workouts or just your workouts look like. And, and, you know, check yourself to see if you're actually doing the work before you focus on things like, Oh my gosh, my FTP is set two watts too high or too low, or, (laughs) you know, or um, I'm not getting the right volume in this way or that way. And they don't look at this like really more pivotal part of training um, that can have such a big impact.
0: Well said, Ivy. And like, Who knew that Z two had like a 450 watt range to it. Um, that's like, (laughs) I feel
2: so bad because there are absolutely forum athletes that, um, I've, I've helped with this that will think I'm doxing them right now. It's not just you. I promise that there are many, there are many of (laughs) many athletes that suffer from this.
0: Totally. (laughs) Uh, it's a, it's a really good point though. Like if you, and, and Ivy, in most cases, it seems like we see this with athletes that are like, like in particular, it seems problematic on the easier days, the days that were supposed to be easy. Um, and I think that a lot of us take a lot of creative Liberty in interpreting what Z two means or like Mm -hmm. endurance means we're like, yeah, it's an endurance day, which if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the time we, we are actually saying it's a day where I get to ride. However, I want to ride. And that's not what it is because if we want to ride, however we want to ride, if somebody passes us or we see a rider in front of us and we can't help, but chase that carrot, that's how you want to ride. Uh, if you, uh, are going up this like climb and you're really tempted to just surge up the climb for one reason or another, uh, KOMs, you know, riding with friends, maybe chasing another carrot, just looking cool. I don't know. Uh, then once again. That's riding how you want to ride, but that's not, uh, riding in endurance. And then the same thing about just coasting around and going really easy when really the day, the intent of the day is to keep you pedaling, like, and you don't have to be setting the world on fire, but stay pedaling and all those things really like it's all intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Ivy, uh, Sevilla, what's one thing. And it's gone dark there in Girona. We can still see you though. Thank goodness. Um, (laughs) What's, what's something that you wish or that you think athletes could do that would benefit from like, what's that one thing?
1: Yeah. Well, mine is like slightly different than Ivy's, but they're, they're related. They're for sure connected. Um, but it's, it's recovering, resting, like making sure you just recovering after your workouts, after doing what Ivy just explained, um, and then just (laughs) resting. I mean, I feel like there's so many young athletes and I was such, I, I was so one of the, one of these people who would just, you know, after your workout, you like, you feel like you need to do stretching and rolling and massage gun and, and core. And what you really should be doing is just chilling. Like resting and letting your body adapt and recover from that workout and not just like killing yourself with more, um, more stretching and stuff. I, I typically like, will do all of that, like my stretching routine or whatever, um, like a day after a hard workout or a hard session. Um, but I think that it's, it's like such a common misconception kind of that, all of those things, like the yoga, the stretching, the rolling is, is like good, which it is, but in, in moderation, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and really just not to overlook letting your body just recover and chill and adapt to the training. And I think it's, it's, um, yeah, it happens a lot. And I, I used to be very much one of these people. <laughs> um, and it's been, it's hard. It's like, it's taken me like years to, um, to kind of understand. So yeah, really important.
0: All right. Great, great advice. Yeah. If you added up all the time that you would spend with like, uh, between ice baths, recovery boots, massage guns, yoga, stretching, foam rolling, uh, massage, like all those things, if you add them all up, you have zero time to do anything. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Um, Chad, how about you? What's one thing that you wish athletes would do?
3: Mm, I, I think I've been a coach in some capacity for far too long to have just one. So <laughs> I've got a bunch of them, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll whittle it down, especially considering Ivy already covered a biting workout prescription. Cause that's huge. Sevilia just touched on recovery and its importance and how recovery should be recovery. And, uh, these days, and this is, I'm going to crib it from somebody else just just amber's advice not to diet on the bike and that that's it's huge it's absolutely huge and and man that's a tough hurdle for a lot of people to clear just can't seem to get that straight and 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 it still happens and i watch it happen all the time and i hear complaints about how workouts go and how performance is tanking and 99 percent of the time comes right back to nutrition that's that's the one thing they're not getting right um and then just one more if you'll allow it is uh it kind of ties to what, what Ivy said, too, by getting too hung up on the details, uh, some of the details of the workout and being perfectly in the zone, being uh, having your FTP set exactly correctly. You're never going to have that for what it's worth. So cut yourself some slack. Give yourself a 10% buffer. I like the idea of being 90% right 90% of the time, and, and that, that gives you enough slack, but not not so much that you can derail, but definitely enough that you can – you know, just focus on what's important and that's getting it mostly right. Most of the time.
0: Nice. Good ones. Uh, adding to the rest of these and understanding that hopefully you all can accept this as a body of work that instead of them being mutually exclusive in any ways, they're all very good, uh, is do less, but do that less well. And what I, that doesn't sound right, but what I mean is (laughs) do less. People always think, and it's logical to our brains that the way to get faster is to do more, but I think that for the majority of us, particularly those of us with, with, um, typical lives with a lot of different depends, uh, you know, like, um, dependence in our lives and dependencies, everything else, it's way better to do less training, but to nail that training really well. And that allows, like Sevilia said, for us to be able to recover a bit more rather than trying to fill. You know, if you have six uh, available hours in the week, what if instead you just filled it with three to four hours and instead then you took the two to three that you had extra and you made those recovery hours, like you didn't just leave them to be filled with something else, but you intentionally made them recovery hours. How great would that be? Like probably bring a lot of your life into balance and symmetry as well outside of just the bike. Um, so I, I see this commonly athletes always seek to do more when they should instead seek to do less and do that smaller amount. Very well, um, hit your marks very well to check all those boxes. And instead you'll get like a much bigger outcome from it. Um, the last thing that and I would say on the lines of nutrition is I wish that it's like two things. I wish that people would focus on carbs more than electrolytes. I see a lot of people like really focusing on electrolytes and like, well, I don't know if I want to take in carbs because then what am I going to do about my electrolytes? And, and honestly, if you're looking at performance limiters, chances are the limiter that's really holding you back from ideal performance is carbs over electrolytes. It's not that one of them is not important. The other is, but carbs have more bearing on your performance. Um, uh, so I wish that people would prioritize that. And then I wish people would get rid of the dogmatic things around nutrition on the bike when they say like you know, toward the beginning or toward the end, I need to go to solids. Really. It's just everything around like solid foods. Um, that's disproven at the top level of the sport. And it's disproven at the average level of the sport too. We see athletes of all ability levels doing a fantastic job of feeling themselves optimally with just sugar and salt in the most, you know, quick way to absorb, whether that's through drink mix or gels and just getting it down the hatch and getting it through that way. So I think. Uh, those things could help if everybody just followed those tips. We'd all instantly gain like, you know, you know, 50 Watts right there. So we'd be pretty good. Um, I feel like that's a good spot to end on. Um, I'm not going to, we had a couple other questions to go on. We're going to push them to f- further weeks, but that was, I feel like that was a, a good spot to end civilian. So, really, it's been fun to have you on. Thanks for coming on. First of all, when's your first right? Like, race that you're planning on and for world cups, what are you going to race the whole world cup schedule?
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. The race. So I'm in Spain right now for two months. Um, and the first race will be actually in like two and a half weeks. Um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just a local race, um, just for training. And then the first like big UCI race is mid February, uh, close, pretty close by in Spain. So I'll do some early season racing here and then kind of have a break. Um, do the U S cups in, in the U S, uh, in April and then, yeah, then hit the first world cup in May. So
0: sweet. Yeah. It's it's all coming up
1: so fast. Uh, you can find me on Instagram it's at Sebelia Blanc. That's where I'm most active. So yeah, that's a good spot.
0: Awesome. Cool. So follow Sevilla and the rock rider team. It's going to be awesome, really strong team. It's going to be exciting to watch. Uh, give all of us a follow, go to trainerroad.com sign up, follow trainer road on Instagram, all different social platforms. If you're watching this on YouTube subscribe. So then you don't miss any uploads. We have some cool video content coming your way soon. And also if you're listening to this podcast, if you rate it and then you share it with people, that's like the biggest way to say, thank you. It's a free podcast, something that we love doing. And it's a basically our marketing effort. Um, we market through all of you sharing how trainer road, uh, is helpful for you. So. Please share it with people, share the podcast, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.